Hello and welcome to Within All Things. My name is Azriela Jankovic. On this show, I'll be interviewing Leah Aharoni. Leah is a successful businesswoman, business consultant, and business coach. She has been in the field for over 25 years. She will tell us a fascinating story of when she was born in Russia and how learning about her spiritual heritage was actually illegal. And she faced serious threats to her life and the life of her family for simply learning about her heritage. We'll learn more about her life, her journey from Russia to the United States, and finally to Israel, where she resides now. In addition to her work in the business sector, she has also been a head of the mayor's office at the Bet El Municipal Council. She has a master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology, a bachelor's degree in education, and certifications in life and business coaching. In this episode, she'll share with us her secrets to success. As you'll discover, she teaches and she also lives by certain spiritual principles that have the ability within themselves to bring us abundance, healing, and really a host of other benefits that can make our lives in this world a better place. Let's go ahead and get started. Leah, tell us a little bit about your life. I was born in the former Soviet Union, um, and my bringing is a little bit different from what people have in the West because growing up in the former Soviet Union in a family that actually was opposed to the regime meant that I lived in two different realities. There is the reality we had at home. My parents would tell me basically everything they think about communism and how they oppose it and how wrong it is. And then I would go outside you know, into the world and there was this story told about how communism is the best thing that could ever happen to people and how we're living in the best society possible. And, and sort of navigating this double story from, from literally from, from as far back as I can remember myself um, is, is, an, is an upbringing that gave me an understanding that really all of the world is, is multifaceted and complex and that multiple stories and multiple layers to every reality. So that was one thing. The other thing that I grew up with was a very strong Jewish identity. Um, Although, like I said, although Judaism wasn't practiced in the Soviet Union, uh, my parents really told me all about my Jewish identity from a very early age. Like I was three years old, I would stand on the couch and scream, I'm Jewish, you know. So, um, and um, when I was around 10, my mother literally took me into a snow-covered forest away from prying ears and told me everything that she knew about Israel and Judaism, which wasn't much, but everything that she knew, she made sure to tell me and with a lot of pride. And um, my father would actually turn, he had a transistor that enabled him to listen to clandestine um, radio uh, broadcasts of American and Israeli um, radio in Russian. It was illegal to listen to them, but um, he would turn them on every night. And I would fall asleep listening to, you know, stories from the West and stories about Israel and to Jewish content. So, um, so like so, I said, it's really growing so, up with two identities, you know, the public yes. identity and your private identity and, and trying to manage and navigate two of them. Okay, Leah, so for, for those of us who are not yet so familiar, can you walk us through a little bit in terms of 
when your parents were teaching you about your your religion, what were the dangers? Like, why why weren't they not allowed to do that? And what threats did they face if they were discovered teaching you about these things? So when I was nine, my mother, who was a Russian lawyer, literally sat me down and told me what I should do if my parents are ever arrested, what my rights are if I'm ever interrogated by the KGB, what I should say, what I shouldn't say, whom should I call, what should I do? It was, it was literally like we knew that this person, you know, this neighbor is, an, is a KGB informant and that person you shouldn't trust and you cannot talk about anything you hear at home outside. And my mother's first cousin and his wife were actually killed by the KGB in a staged car crash. Your so, mother's first cousin yes. was killed by the KGB in a staged car crash. Yes. So when I was nine, I had this second cousin being brought up by his grandmother because he was an orphan. And I knew that, you know, (laughs) there were no stories. I I totally knew what happened to his parents. So the danger was very real and, and you live with it. I know it sounds scary and preposterous now that we're sitting out here, you know, in the free world. But for me, that was just everyday reality and, and understanding that, you know, these are things you can't say. These are things you cannot say from a very early age, from as far as I remember myself. Literally, like, as soon as I started talking, I knew that the things you just don't say outside the house. So you knew that there was this secret world of spirituality that must have been so important to your mother, who was a lawyer, who knew full well the dangers that she faced in teaching these traditions to you. And yet, she took you out into the snow-covered forest and she told you everything that she knew. Yes. What did, she, what did she share with you? What do you remember from that day? I think she shared about, I don't remember. It was, it was a long walk. It was a very long walk. She told me about Israel. She told me stories from the Six-Day War. And we're talking in the mid-80s, but you know what she heard were things from the, from the um, Six-Day War about how, you know, how Israel was created, how it triumphed in its wars, and certain bits and pieces of, of Jewish tradition. Really, she didn't know much. But I think it was very, very important for her to instill this Jewish identity in me. And I'm thinking back to it, my grandfather, her father, traveled to visit relatives in France during the mid-80s. And he brought back two items made in Israel, actually smug, smuggled them in because if he would have been caught, he would have been sent to prison because this, these items were not allowed in Russia. He smuggled in a tiny prayer book in Hebrew. We, none of us knew how to read Hebrew, but just having it was important. And he smuggled in a napkin holder with pictures of the Western Wall on it. He would open this little window and there was a, a set of pictures of the Western Wall that would come out. And I remember as a child sitting by my parents' dining room table, looking at these pictures and just somehow sensing and knowing that my home is not in Russia. My home is in Israel. Um, So when I was 17, as soon as I finished high school and basically was a free person, the first thing I did was just get on the plane and come to Israel. So one more significant thing happened to me before we left Russia was that... um, when I was 12 and the Soviet curtain sort of lifted a little bit, um, American Jewish organizations made sure to bring Jewish books into Israel. And I got the first set that was brought in uh, a, a prayer book and a copy of the Hebrew Bible with Russian translation. 
And uh, my uncle got a copy. He had nothing to do with that. So he, nothing to do with it. So he gave it over to me. And reading these texts really sort of gave me the first inside educated glimpse at, at what Judaism is and what it's about. And then shortly afterwards, it became possible to actually leave Russia. And my parents got, you know, applied for a visa. And we left when I was 13 and came to the United States. And in the United States, you know, it's like you, you taste freedom all, all, all of a sudden. You don't have to look over your shoulder. You don't have to be worried who's listening to your phone. And you can basically do anything you want and think anything you want and say anything you want. And you can pursue the education that you want. So as soon as we got to the United States, I walked into the local library and read everything they had on, on the Jewish shelf. And when that was not enough, basically, you know, opened the phone book, found the nearest Jewish school, knocked on the principal's door and said, hi, I want to study here. So that enabled me to get a Jewish education. And by the time I was 17, to actually know how to read Hebrew, be familiar with Jewish texts, be familiar with the Bible, and then come to Israel and explore that in, in, in more depth. As soon as we left Russia, our first stop was actually in, in Austria, in Vienna. And when we got off the plane, um, we had to make a decision. The family had to make a decision where to go. And my mother told me, you keep quiet because you want to go to Israel, but we are going to America. <laughs> so I kept quiet then. But, you know, four years later, I really realized my dream and came to, to Israel. And it's been amazing ever since. So have you been in Israel since you graduated high school? Yeah, I've been in Israel for the past 26 years since I graduated high school. I came to Israel at the age of 17, and I got a degree in, in Bible because I really wanted to learn more um, as much as I could. Um, and, you know, I got married. I have seven kids, and I'm bringing them up here in Israel. And about 15 years ago, I became exposed to the Hasidic tradition and, and to the Hasidic teachings, which has been... The, I think the turning point of my life because it's like having a veil lifted and you're seeing this whole spiritual underpinning that I was talking about earlier. You're seeing this whole spiritual reality behind the physical world. Um, so wow. learn a little bit, little bit about Hasidism. It's, uh, it's a movement that, was, that started in the mid-1600s in, uh, in Ukraine and Poland. And started by the Baal Shem Tov, uh, Rabbi Israel, And the two main parts of these teachings are that a God creates the world every single second. Not like we think that God created the world once, you know, in the beginning, in Genesis, and then the world just continues going on autopilot. But what Hasidism teaches is that God literally creates the world anew every single second. And if you know anything about modern physics, that's actually exactly how it is. So um, understanding that God creates the world every single second creates a very different reality and ability to relate to the world and to what happens to you in a very, in a much, with much more equanimity than, than would otherwise be possible. And the other thing that Hasidism teaches is that every person's worth is unconditional. Every person's worth and value are based on only one fact that God created them and put them into the world. And that's the beginning, middle, and end of your worthiness. Because in the Western world, we think that I am worthy if I met a certain criteria that was instilled in me as a child. 
and we all um, have conditions for our self-acceptance and self-love and self-worth. And what Hasidism teaches is no, there are no conditions. You are worthy just by the fact of being a human being and then any kind of accomplishments you make, that's step two and that's amazing and obviously we have to accomplish things, but that doesn't say anything about your worthiness as a human per- as a human being. So these teachings for me were really revolutionary and I've been spending the past 15 years integrating them in- into my life and teaching them to other people and they can make a huge difference in people's lives. In thinking about these two different ideas, the first one that the world is constantly being recreated and the second one that we are intrinsically worthy because we have been created and we are being constantly. So is, is that right that we are also, because we're part of creation, are we also being constantly recreated by this infinite God as well? Yes, we do. We're part of creation and we are being recreated every single moment. And there's actually a very powerful idea. The Jewish New Year is coming up next week. And there's a very powerful idea that um, every year before the New Year, uh, God just takes our consciousness away. And then on the New Year, as we blow the shofar, he gives us a new higher consciousness for the coming year that we have never had before. So... I think most people feel like, you know, they're limited to what they can, to their consciousness, to what they know, to what their abilities are. And this idea is you get new consciousness every year. You know, the work of this year is not the same as the work of last year. So you're getting a whole set of new tools and abilities and consciousness for, for the work of the coming year. And in a certain sense, you actually get that every day. Every day, every morning, you open your eyes, you get a new download something you haven't had the day before. It's a very liberating idea because what I can do today is not what I could do tomorrow and what I'm expected to do today is not what I was expected to do tomorrow. So my abilities are different every single day. It's very liberating. So I'll give you an example I had a few months ago, which was very profound for me. It's very random, but it was very profound. I was supposed to speak to a group of um, American college students in, Amer- in, in Jerusalem. And I obviously got, you know, left on time to be on time with time to spare. And I got on the light rail, which runs through Jerusalem, to get to, get to my speaking engagement. And then halfway through the ride, the, the light rail just gets stuck. And it stands there for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And at that point I'm saying, okay, like, I don't know how long it's going to be stuck. I'm just getting off and I'm walking in heels on cobblestone. You can't, there are no car, there's no car traffic at this part, in this part of town. You just really have to walk. Now I called the organizers, explained the situation and told them, you know, I'm sorry, I'm late, but I'm, I'm, I'm coming, I'm walking. Now for me to be late is, is like earth shattering. I hate being late and especially being late to my own speaking engagement. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
but but what hit me at that moment was, you know, God creates the world every single second, and God created the world in this second in a way that you cannot get to your speaking engagement in time. There's nothing you can do to get there in time. So just let go and do the best you can. And I do not know why God decided that I'm going to be late 25 minutes for my own speaking engagement. But if that's what he decided, that's what it's going to be. So instead of being nervous, stressed out, annoyed, um, angry, and all the other negative emotions I could have had, I just relaxed. And, you know, I just walked. And, yes, I was 25 minutes late, and I said, I'm sorry, and I told them why. And actually shared my thought process with the students there about understanding that God created the world. And if that's what he meant for the best of me and those listeners, that that was, was going to happen. And I, I don't know what effect that had or did not have on them, but I know that I had a minute of equanimity and actually the situation that could have been so stressful and negative turns out into something positive because I really connected to God at that moment. So that's an example of when I'm in this consciousness of God creating the world every second, I can really take a negative experience and turn it into something positive. I don't need to know why God decided that. You know, that's just maybe one day he'll show me and maybe he won't, but it's really relevant. Wow. You know, I think, I think we all have so much to learn from that idea. And as I'm imagining you walking in your heels down the cobblestone and you're late and there's nothing that you could do to change that situation, I'm thinking about the, really the biochemistry of stress and how this very much can, the simple idea that you're sharing with us is so powerful because it has the ability in itself to allow us to relax. We're not getting frustrated. We're not getting angry. We're not affecting our other people negatively. And because of that, we are able to tune in with a higher level of consciousness simply by being present with the fact that reality is as it is supposed to be. And I'm going to be in a place of acceptance. Very true. Very true. And I think the more we do that, the more it becomes our reality. Because at first, it's really hard, especially when something like being late is a problem for you. We know we all have our issues. We all have an issue that really sparks stress for us. And it's different for different people. So the first time you have to really be in this place of acceptance, it's a lot of effort. And the second time, it's a lot of effort. But by a certain point, the more you practice this and the more you get into this consciousness, then it's just, you know, it's not an effort anymore. Like yesterday, my car, I gave a class and, you know, 10.30 p.m., I have to get back home. My car doesn't start. Okay? So, you know, so I stopped somebody and tried to get, you know, um, get my car jumped and it, it didn't work. So that, that person gave me a ride back home. It, it could be a very stressful situation or it could be just a situation of, you know, this is what there is. We do the best we do. And, and, you know, go on with your day and just be totally okay. And I know some people listen to this and this is really odd to them. Like, how can you be okay in this stressful situation? And I think we really just accept this stress is the stress we're creating for ourselves. I, I don't think it's necessary. You've done so much in your professional life and you've lived in three countries and you've really taken on this journey professionally and spiritually all on your own. And I'd love to have you paint a picture for us of what that transition looked like and how you got into this current project of visiting the masters and and bringing other people with you. 
Okay, so they're just touched to this project. Um, at a, I was running a translation agency about seven or eight years ago, which I established, and I was asked to mentor a small group of women on on just business on business management, just from my experience. And um, after a year of volunteering with these women, I understood that basically when I that's what I want to do when I grow up. Um, I want to help other people establish their their businesses. You need to understand that growing up in Russia one of the things you're taught is that nobody cares what you think. And, um, and especially in the kind of family I grew up, you know, the message is you don't need to think we already thought for you and just, you know, do, do what you're told and you'll be okay. And when I was six, you know, there was this message in my family is that you were an amazing child until you had an opinion of your, of your own. So I've been taught from a very early age to just sit down, shut up, and do what you're told. And at the age of 35, I'm understanding that I actually have a voice and I actually want things and I can create those things in the world. And business is just really an extension of of this voice that I have for the world. And being able to help other women find themselves, their voice, and project it as a business, as a career, or just, just in any other way, was very, very interesting and also healing. So um, if I got in, I got trained in coaching, I got a master's degree in organizational psychology, I closed my translation business and went into business coaching and consulting, which is what I've been doing for the past seven years. And as part of working with so many people, with individuals and businesses and organizations, what I've discovered that no amount of marketing or business help can help if people do not have this very deep grounded self of self-worth, self-acceptance, and self-love. And just being okay with who they are and being okay in their skin. And the more I realized that, the more I understood that this is the work that's really important. That's the work I want to be doing. And this is the work I've been doing mostly for the past a couple of years, just helping people understand that they are okay. Just one, just one situation. I'm, I was working with somebody who is a CEO of an organization, and they had a few bad run-ins with clients. And and this CEO was literally like feeling like such a failure because you know things are not working out with their clients. She was literally throwing up every Sunday, just thinking about going back to work the next day. It took her quite a while to integrate this into her thinking because this was such a foreign idea to her. But we integrated this idea that she is worthy just because of who she is, of what she is. She's God's creation. She, her worthiness does not depend on what her client thinks of her that day, whether that's good or bad. And the more she integrated that, the calmer she became. You know, she stopped throwing up every Sunday. And, and the better her relationships with her clients became. And actually, her clients became much more appreciative of her because she was appreciative of herself. And I know many people think that's irrational, but that's exactly how it works. And I've seen that with my clients so many times. The second my clients start to appreciate, accept, and be okay with who they are and just be okay being, no matter how they perform, the more the world reflects that back to them. Wow. So. It's, 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 really, it's really incredible how this teaching of our intrinsic worth that you learn from these spiritual masters has such a practical application. And I think you really showed us so clearly with this situation, this CEO who was able to overcome physical symptoms because she integrated the idea that she was intrinsically worthy. 
how do I actualize this in my own life? Or can I do this by myself? Absolutely, you can. Well, first of all, for many of us, it doesn't, it feels counterintuitive. But what I'm asking people to do first is to just intellectually connect to the idea. I know it doesn't feel right. I know it doesn't sit right. But can you intellectually at least make certain steps, wrap your head around the idea that you have intrinsic value because God put you there? And after some conversation, for some people, it's quite a big jump and a big leap of faith because they're just not, they don't understand what that means even. But... Um, once they sort of can intellectually wrap their head around this idea, what I suggest is actually just talking about it to other people, discussing it with other people, and looking out for examples and clues in your everyday life to see how that's true, how you know the world supports this idea, because the world really reflects to us what we believe. So that's step one, really just making intellectual sense of this, talking to other people and looking out for clues. And then taking a little bit of time a day, maybe like five, 10 minutes to, to, to think this idea through, to maybe meditate on it, to think of all the things that are right with you, all the things you're grateful for. There are many, 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 many more things right with every person than they're wrong with every person and certainly with people who are growth-oriented. There are many, many things, many more things that are right with us than that are wrong with us. So embracing that part, um, I find it very helpful. I can tell you that even 15 years ago, if I would think of anything I had done wrong and any kind of wrongdoing or wrong saying of my own, I would have a, a physical sensation of wanting to be um, swallowed by the earth. Literally, I felt it. And I thought about it recently. I haven't felt that in a very long time. Because who I am, my worthiness, my um, value in this world is just not dependent on my performance. It's, it's total. And if I make a mistake, so fine. So I made a mistake, I'll learn from it, I'll fix it. I'll do better next time. Uh, but if I make a mistake or if somebody doesn't like me or if somebody has bad feedback, it doesn't really say anything about my worthiness. So when you have feedback in terms of, say, your business performance or a speech that you gave, be that feedback positive or negative, are you saying that you're not listening to it or are you saying that there's just a part of you that it doesn't necessarily affect? Um, obviously, it's work in progress. I can't say that feedback doesn't, doesn't um, influence me at all. But if it's positive feedback, I understand that there's something of value of what I'm go- doing. It's obviously, obviously validating. Um, but there's something of value that I'm doing. For example, I just did a retreat last week and women were very, very happy and gave me a lot of positive feedback. So obviously it felt well, uh, felt very pleasant, but also it gave me feedback that I'm doing something of value. I should be doing more of that because that's what people need. And if people give me negative feedback, so it's one of two things. It's either I made a mistake. Okay, let me reevaluate what I did wrong and how I could do it better next time. Or it's, you know, they're just projecting their own stuff onto me and um, I don't really have to pay attention to that. I think, it's a, I think it's a really deep idea. I think a lot of this speaks to the fact that when we're focused on doing spiritual work in the world, we realize that it's not entirely us. There's something bigger going on. There's something that we are really a part of. 
And I, I just, I love this idea. I think it's, it's so valuable. I'm curious to hear a little bit more from you in terms of your trips. You just mentioned that you did a retreat and I saw the amazing pictures. I, I know that you did this one in Israel and I'd love to hear more about your retreats in general. And also I'm, I'm, I'm just so curious about these trips to Eastern Europe where you visit the spiritual masters and, and if you could share with us a bit about that too. So um, my background, like I said, is very scientific, rational, logical, you know, and um, I wasn't really into mysticism or, or visiting spiritual masters. And then one day I had a really, really bad day. This is about two years ago, just a really bad day. And I decided that, you know, instead of this becoming a train wreck, I'm just going to take myself to the Western Wall um, there's a spot in the Western Wall Tunnels that's right across from the Holy of Holiest. It's the holiest place in the world, according to the Jewish tradition. And just I took a book of Psalms, and I decided that I'm going to read the entire thing. It's like a three-hour undertaking. I have never done it before, but I had such a bad day. You know, that sounded like a good thing to do. And as I'm reading the Psalms, and I'm crying and reading and crying, all of a sudden, in the middle, I get this light bulb going off in my mind. Now, this lightning flash that says, you are going to Ukraine. And, you know, I, I got up and I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> Me, Ukraine, um, sounded very far-fetched. But then that's what I did. I actually um, decided that I looked at, there, there are a few women who do these trips um, here in Israel. Not that many women who do it in English, but a few. And... Um, I decided to organize, because I teach Hasidic uh, teachings, I decided to get together with a woman who has done trips like this before and organize a group and go. And we got a group together and we got the tickets, we got the reservations, everything's ready and set to go. And then she calls me and says, Laya, I have to cancel. My daughter's graduation is on the day of our trip. And I tell her, yes, but we have a group of 10 women. What are we going to do? She says, you're going to lead them on your own. And I say, yeah, but I have never <laughs> been there. She says, you'll do fine. <laughs> wow. And, you know, like talking about you have no control over the situation, like literally nothing you can do. You know, I just had the sense of this trip was not my idea. God planted this idea into my mind. He got this group together he changed her daughter's graduation, you know, schedule. So obviously God entrusted this, hand, this into my hands. I'm going to prepare the best I can, read as much as I can, interview as many people as I can, you know, just learn everything I can. And I'm just going to go and take this woman with me. And you know what? It was an amazing, amazing experience. Just an amazing experience. And since then, I've done quite a few of these trips. And I'm doing another one uh, in November. And the trip consists of visits to the resting places of the different Hasidic masters around Ukraine. It's about five days. We visit five different cities. And every one of the spots, every one of the places we come to, we'll learn from the teachings of that Hasidic master. And we connect to those teachings on a very um, emotional and also experiential, in an experiential way. I'll give you an example. Um, there is a teaching in one of the books about baking challah bread in a form of a key because there's certain times during the year when you can open, you know, the gates of heaven with this key. So 
so what I did with women, for example, was sit down and just do guided imagery of what door do you want to open in your life? And what would that key look like? And what would be on the other side of that door? What do you want, you know, what's your next step? And then, okay, so let's, let's bake that, bake that key. And, uh, and we did that at the study hall of, of the spirit of the Hasidic master who, you know, who taught that teaching. So it really, it comes alive because you're literally in the room where this person sat down and wrote this text. So um, it becomes very profound, very experiential, and very connected. You, I don't think you can learn these texts with the same level of intensity and experience them with the same level of intensity as, as you can there on the spot. This is how it makes sense to me. You have eyes to see and you have ears to listen and you have a mouth to taste. So these are different ways of experiencing the world and they're all valid. And they all give us a different, different, different input and different ways of understanding and relating to the world. So I'm absolutely, um, I absolutely believe in, in rational logic and in the rational physical world. But what, the way I think about it, it's one way of perceiving the world. And there are other ways of perceiving the world that are more um, intuitive and more emotional and, and really more spiritual and connecting to that spiritual aspect. It, they don't negate rational logic. They're just a different sense. There is a tradition in, the, in, in Judaism that you know, a certain part of the spirit of, of, of a master, of a rabbi, of a, of a person, of a righteous person, um, sort of, you know, is present at, at the resting place. So when you come there, you just feel it. You, you know, it's not, it's not something rational, really. You just, you just feel it. And the interesting thing is that we go to different spots, different resting places, and you feel different energies, different emotions, different things, different realities at the different places and um, you come out a different person people have told me that five days on this trip are really transformational and another thing that is really quite amazing is that how a group of 20 women who have never met before can bond and coalesce so quickly and become so connected and so trusting and so open and vulnerable with each other and just become and so caring for each other and give each other so much and I've seen friendships form there within days that go on for years afterwards and it's quite amazing. It's so incredible. You know, I really identify with the way that you describe the spiritual and the rational and how there's a lot of overlap. It's not necessarily like an either or. And one thing I'm, I'm curious to hear more about, one thing that I've been fascinated by recently is the science of visualization. And I'm curious if your visualization practices that you do on the retreat, were these actually informed by the spiritual masters? 
So, so yes, um, many of the Hasidic texts actually have suggestions for visualizations you can do and um, for ways you can, you know, things you can picture or ideas you can bring in. And you see, not, not everybody reads them as visualizations and not everybody reads them as meditations and then they don't really make so much sense. But I'll give you a beautiful idea I read in a book by the Piasetsna Rebbe, who, who he died during the Holocaust in the 1940s in Poland. He gives a, a beautiful metaphor, which I think gives us a way of understanding this. He says that, imagine a poor person, a poor person who, you know, who panhandles on the street and collects money to feed his family. So, you know, so he spends about eight hours collecting charity. And at the end of the day, he has, you know, what, $20. He goes, he buys some fruit and vegetables and some bread, and he comes back and feeds his family. And then this poor person has a dream at night that he is the king. And he wakes up and thinking, it takes me eight hours to connect enough charity to feed my kids. If I was the king, how much charity would I need, would I need to collect to feed my whole army of 20,000 people? So I think we're a little bit like that. We, we have certain tools and certain ways of living, and we create certain results with that. And then we see other results, you know, bigger ways of being, and we can't imagine how we can create and access those high levels of being with the tools that are hardly working for us now. Everything in our world is created twice. First, it's created as a concept. And then it can be created to exist. You cannot create something without the concept of it. So there is a way to meditate in which you can close your eyes and just picture what it is that you actually want. What is this reality that you would actually like to happen? What does it look like? What would it look like? What would it feel like? What would you feel like being in that reality? Just really in a very strong 3D technicolor, imagine being there, living it. That's step one. But then there's step two. And step two is just letting go. And it's understanding that you can want it, you can work towards it, but you don't control it. And you don't always control how it's going to happen. And in really understanding that you're going to do things to make it happen, but you're going to outsource the results to God. And let he, I love that outsource the results. That's one tool that I find to be very powerful. And it, once again, it gives you that sense of equanimity of yes, I want this. Yes, this is my goal. Yes, I'm going to work towards it. But I will be okay no matter what. I'll be okay with it, and I'll be okay without it because God is in control of results. Um, I find that to be a very powerful way of visualizing and working towards things. That's incredible. That's really. I really appreciate so much of what you're saying and how it all ties together. And now that I'm thinking back at these two core teachings that you were sharing with us earlier, and this notion that we are all intrinsically worthy, I think has so much power to further our ability to maintain a state of equilibrium, this emotional equanimity where when we receive praise or when we receive um, you know, negative feedback, Whatever's happening around us, there's a part within us that it is not touching. And that is the part that knows its intrinsic worth. So I really appreciate that teaching. And then this idea of visualizing too. I myself have been exploring, as you know, this, this field for, for a while now. And 
it's fascinating how visualization has made its way into medicine and science. And we're only now on the brink of discovering its power. Seeing this understanding that we are more than just what the senses sense exists um, in all, all traditions and all religions. So that already makes it universal because if it's out there for people to access, then it's universal and there's no reason why it shouldn't be. And I think obviously what makes Judaism very different is that it believes in one creator who created the world and who is constantly involved with the world. And nothing is too big or too small to bring to his doorstep. I, I have a class I teach, and yesterday a woman was um, discussing the fact that her, you know, she sends her husband to do groceries, and he always buys rotten apples. So, <laughs> so and then she has shown him and scolded him, and you know they've been married for like 40 years, okay? So this is 40 years of, of rotten apples now. And, and she said, nothing works. I said, have you tried something different? Have you tried like visualizing your husband bringing good apples and just letting God handle this? So she said, do you think I'm going to bother God with apples? And I said, yes, why not? <laughs> nothing is too big or too small to bring to his doorstep. I think when oh. we make God too big, we make him small. We limit him. Nothing is too big or too small to bring to his doorstep. He can handle wow. it. That is, it's so beautiful. So I'm listening to this and I'm thinking how any issue that we're having in our life, anything that we're observing that we want to see changed, we can begin to visualize that. I think that the more we incorporate that and the more we live that, I think we actually make the world better because it makes just, it makes us more relaxed, patient, present, helpful people. Because if we know that we can bring everything to God's doorstep and ask him for anything and everything, and, and he's there to really in his compassion to give it to us, it eliminates a lot of the tension and competition and, and you know, backstabbing and a lot of negative emotions people have when they think they live in a, in a world of scarcity with limited resources they have to fight for. Whereas when we live in God's world, then really nothing is too big or too small to ask. He obviously always decides if he wants to give it to us. That's his decision. But when we live in this world of, you know, being able to rely on, on, on an unlimited God for, you know, whatever needs we have, um, it, I think it just makes for a much better world and for a much more pleasant world for all of us to, all of us to live in. A pleasant world, indeed. I'm, I'm reflecting over the teachings that you've shared with us over the course of our conversation, and I'm just marveling at all the benefits I think that these teachings can really bring to us on a, on a daily basis, from being more calm, more centered, kinder, more relaxed, more, um, you know, uh, bigger visionaries, and even possibly more excited about life and excited about the future, I think it's just bringing really more good and more consciousness. You know, some, I, I live in a town that's a little bit isolated and the bus service here, the public transportation here is not so good. So there is a, there's a gas station where people actually hitch rides to get home. And when I drive back home, I always stop and I pick somebody up and, and take them back home. It takes me two minutes. But having the patience and having that 
you know, sense of calm actually allows me to make that stop and not feel harried and rushed to get back home. And then when somebody, you know, I pick somebody up who is also has to make it home to pick up her kids from, from kindergarten, it's just, wow, thank God somebody <laughs> stopped, right? So I hear I'm stopping for her and she says, thank God. It's, it's doing little things for other people that really lets those people live in a positive world, in a better world, in a world that God does good things for them. So by actually by giving kindness to other people, we are letting other people experience the world as just a good, beneficial, happy world run by a benevolent, loving God. And um, I think that's really, in Jewish teaching, that's the purpose of the world. The purpose of the world is for each one of us to lead other people to realizing that we live in a world run by a loving, benevolent father who is here to do the best for us. And the more we can give that to other people, the more we're really realizing the purpose of creation. There's more good in the world than there is of anything else. And I think it's, it's a matter of putting on these glasses, you know, whether we're looking at ourselves or looking at the world, when we're looking for something, we're going to find it. But I see in my own life that, that it's made a big difference. And now, you know, from what you're sharing with me, I'm, I'm already feeling so inspired to reincorporate these anew. So I want to thank you so much for being here with us today. And, you know, if there's anything else you want to share with the listeners about your upcoming projects or what it is that you do, I want to go ahead and give you the opportunity to do that for us so that we can hear more from you. First of all, it's my pleasure to be here and really to have this conversation. It does sound too good to be true, but it's not. And it's actually a lot of hard work incorporating it into our life because life just, you know, happens and then we're too busy to think. But the more we incorporate, the better it becomes. I'm always available for people to reach out to me if they want to discuss, if they have a question, if they need you know, some support, if they want to join me on one of the retreats. And they can um, visit me at my site, which is www.loveyour.biz, B-I-Z, loveyour.biz. And um, I'm here for any questions or any inquiries. Happy Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead and put your website and your retreat information and everything else about you in the show notes for today. So those will be accessible on the outlet where our listeners are finding the podcast. And thank you. I, I thank you so much for joining me. This was really an incredible, incredible way to kick off the show. Thank you, Azriela. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Within All Things. I hope you enjoyed. Feel free to send me your questions or feedback about any of the content. You can find some sources for these spiritual teachings in the show notes, as well as information for Leah and how to contact her. I'm looking forward to a really fruitful season of inspiration, spiritual teachings, and connectedness. So go ahead and subscribe to the show wherever you're finding this podcast. Stay tuned with what we've got in store. It is going to be phenomenal. Thanks so much again and every blessing to you.